0: The white pages might be sticking together in that section of your Bible. Nice and crisp pages, not written on, not crinkled. But we're going to hope to amend that problem through the series. We're beginning a series on the book of Leviticus. We'll, We'll take the first 16 chapters as a chunk to dive into. Then maybe I'll give you a little bit of break and we'll come back to it and finish up the series. Leviticus chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, but this morning's message is going to be more of an introduction to the book of Leviticus. Uh, It will be a little bit more teachy than preachy, a little bit more heady than hearty. (laughs) Leviticus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord, that is Yahweh, called to Moses... And spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to Yahweh, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. All men are like grass, the grass withers, and the flowers fall but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we come before You this morning and we ask for Your help. Lord, we desperately need Your help as we open up this ancient book of Leviticus, a book that seems very far removed from our lives. And yet, Lord, I trust as we work our way through it, we will see its tremendous relevance to us. That while much of it comes in pictures and in forms that find their fulfillment and reality in Christ, it is foundational for our understanding of its fulfillment in Christ. Lord, we need Your Spirit. We need Your Spirit to give us understanding into this Word. We need Your Spirit to warm our hearts to this God-breathed text. We need Your Spirit to move our lives towards the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so, Lord, we ask for Your help this morning. And Lord, I also pray for those who are ignorant of who You are, who are not hid in the Lord Jesus Christ, turn their hearts towards Jesus even this morning. Amen. There was an early church heretic by the name of Marcion. Not Martian. We did talk about alien righteousness in this morning's Sunday school. But not Martian, but Marcion. What was his great heresy that he expounded in the second century? Well, amongst the various heresies that he touted, one was that he believed that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. And so he utterly dismissed the first 39 books of the Bible and even had a kind of truncated New Testament that sought to delete all those sections in the New Testament that referred to the God of the Old Testament. He tried to unhitch himself from the Old Testament like Andy Stanley. But you ought not to be like Marcion or like Andy Stanley. We don't want to fall into the air of dismissing those first 39 books of the bible and especially that one book of the bible that often is the place the kind of graveyard of yearly bible reading plans namely the book of leviticus you know you start out january 1 you read in genesis chapter 1 verse 1 you start plowing your way through and you sputter your way through the tabernacle section in leviticus and or in exodus And you're hoping to come up for air in Leviticus and there's just regulation after regulation and it very much reads like a legal book. Because guess what? It is a legal book. It's the law, the regulations of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And so, I want to try to amend that problem of Leviticus becoming the graveyard of yearly Bible reading plans. I want to help you to see and understand some of the glory and beauty of this God-breathed book. And so, uh, this morning, I, I'm, I'm just going to try to answer three questions. First of all, why study the book of Leviticus? Who wrote the book of Leviticus? And what's, what's the, the, the message of Leviticus? So let's start out with why. Why study... This book that is filled with sections that are very butcher-like with blood and animals. This book that we'll get to some gross sections that talk about bodily fluids and uncleanness and and unclean foods and, and things of that sort. Why give ourselves over the next 10 to 12 weeks to a study of the first 16 chapters of this book? Well, first of all, it is part of that profitable God breathed scripture. You remember that verse, that verse you memorized when you were a child, if you grew up in a Christian home, or probably not too long after you became a Christian, second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen and seventeen. I'll remind you of it. All scripture, not just the last twenty-seven books, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, or some of your translations may say, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine... That is teaching what the Bible says, what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about man, what the Bible says about sin, what the Bible says about how you're supposed to believe, how you're supposed to live your life, what the Bible says, the doctrine, the reproof, where you're going wrong in your life and in your belief, the correction, how you need to correct it and get on the right path, In training in righteousness. How to practice that righteousness in your life. And, he continues to say, "It's, it's profitable for these things, and to equip the man of God for every good work. And so that's the testimony from the apostles as to all of the Scripture, that it is profitable. And that includes this ancient book with all of its prohibitions and regulations on bodily fluids and cleanness and uncleanness and animals and sacrifice and blood and priesthood. It's part of the profitable, God-breathed Scriptures. But obviously, it takes a little bit more work to understand than the book of James. It takes a little bit more work to understand than the book of Philippians or or some of the Psalms. But we want to push ourselves a little bit. We want to have a little bit of a cognitive sweat through this series. To work hard to understand these ancient practices and ultimately in the context of the overall canon of Scripture and how they find their fulfillment in Christ so that you can see the profitability. Not only is it part of the profitable, God-breathed Scripture, it's also foundational to the New Testament. Do you ever walk in on, uh, you know, maybe uh, family or friends or halfway through a movie and you walk in on the the second half of the movie and, you know, and and you feel like, well, what's, you know, you're asking the 20 questions, well, who's that? And, And, you know, and they're annoyed by that, Just, just... Just, just stop and go watch the first half. Leave me alone, right? Well, if you only read the second half of your Bible, and you, especially if you miss the book of Leviticus, you're going to miss the first half of the movie. And, and, and you're not going to properly understand the fullness of the New Testament. The New Testament regularly quotes from the book of Leviticus. In fact, one of the most commonly quoted verses in the New Testament, over and over from the Old Testament, is that second greatest commandment, Mark chapter 12, verse 3031, to love your neighbor as yourself. Guess where that came from? It came from the book of Leviticus. Or how about Peter's classic statement? Be holy. For I am holy. That doesn't come from J.C. Ryle. That comes from the book of Leviticus. It's ancient. It's as old as Moses's. It finds its roots and foundation there. How about every time in the New Testament you come to the word sacrifice? It has its roots, its foundation in the book of Leviticus. Every time you read in the New Testament the word blood, in its relationship to sacrifice. It goes back to that bloody book of Leviticus. Every time in the New Testament you read the word priest, it has its foundation in the book of Leviticus. How about the feasts? The feasts that often come up in the Gospels, whether it's the Feast of Passover, or the Feast of Tabernacle, or Booths, or in the Epistles, the Feast of Trumpets. All these different feasts, they're all laid out, sure enough, in Leviticus chapter 23. And we deprive ourselves of a proper understanding of these common New Testament themes that we're familiar with when we deprive ourselves of understanding the book of Leviticus. So, the book of Leviticus ought to be studied because it's part of that profitable, God-breathed Scripture. It's also foundational to an understanding of the New Testament, but also Leviticus communicates to us more than any other book In the Bible, the holy God of Scriptures. Yes, certainly the holiness of God is an attribute that we see shot through from Genesis to Revelation. But over a hundred and fifty times more dense a population in the book of Leviticus than any other book in the Bible is that Hebrew word Kadesh or holy And so many times, over and over, it's referring to God Himself as the foundation of holiness. Well, what is holiness? Does holiness mean, you know, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do? Make sure your dress is down to your ankles. Guys, make sure your hair doesn't reach your ears. Is that what holiness is? Not the holiness of the Bible. The holiness of the Bible starts with the holiness of God. One of our catechism questions for the young people is... Is God just like us? Answer, no. God is distinct and devoted to Himself. The holiness of God highlights the distinctiveness of God, that He is separate, He is other than humanity. He is the Creator and we are the creation. It also highlights His devotion, His devotion to Himself. That's that's one of the things that we see over and over when it comes to holiness in the book of Leviticus. Even the dishes of the tabernacle and later the temple are considered holy. Why? They were to be set apart and devoted to Yahweh God of Israel. The holiness of God highlights His transcendence. It is that holiness by which the, the, the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 are before and they, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty and His transcendent holiness is so blinding to them that even themselves, those seraphim in their own sinless purity have to cover their eyes and cover their feet because they're in the presence of holy God. The holiness of God is to be a sure, to be sure a theme throughout Leviticus. Leviticus twenty verse twenty six says, "Thus you are to be holy to Me, for I Yahweh am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be Mine." Leviticus eleven forty four, for I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. That means to make yourselves holy, set yourselves apart, and be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus, I think, is often difficult to read because, you know, much of the Old Testament is filled with narratives, stories. And Leviticus doesn't have much story to it. In fact, I think there's only two stories in the book of Leviticus. And they're not going to make the cut for the flannel graph or the the, the, the flashcards. The first story is in Leviticus chapter 10. Where you have the two sons of Aaron on the, on the same day that they've been ordained and consecrated and, and anointed and bathed and are ready to enter into the very presence of God in the tabernacle, God strikes them dead. Because they offered strange fire before the Lord. Clearly demonstrating this God is holy. You don't trifle with him. Leviticus chapter 24 is another narrative. In verse 10, it says Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the sons of Israel, and an Israelite woman's son and a man uh, of Israel struggled with each other in the camp, and the son of an Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. It's a story. Verse 13, Then Moses, Then the, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring the one who cursed outside the camp and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Let, then let all the congregation stone him. And he's executed. So two narratives in the book of Leviticus and bodies are dropping. Why? Because God is holy. And He ought to be seen as holy. Now again, you may be sitting here and you've been infected by Marcionism. And you're thinking, well, you know, that's the God of the Old Testament. But it doesn't take... You very long to get into your reading of the New Testament. You see people like Ananias and Sapphira in the early church. They lie to Peter. And bodies are dropping. They're struck dead. And great fear sees the early church. In fact, when, Jesus, when, when the disciples of Jesus asked Jesus, Jesus, how should we pray? The first petition that is laid out, and what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer, is pray that God's name would be regarded as holy. Hallowed be Your name. And friends, this is vitally important. This is vitally important because we live in a culture that certainly does not regard God's name as holy. And I think we also live in an evangelical subculture that thinks quite lightly of God, that needs to have a more robust understanding of God and His holiness. I mean, just as a kind of exhibit A of this, just trace some of the contemporary Christian music of today. I'm not opposed to contemporary Christian music, but so often you listen to a song and it sounds like are they talking is is she talking about her boyfriend or is she talking about the Lord? Because you can't really tell the difference from the lyrics. The old hymn, "Holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty" does not ring in the contemporary ear so often. God is a holy God who is to be feared and we need to see God in the blazing glory of His holiness because that's how He wants to be known. That's how He wants to be regarded as the holy God that He is. He wants a healthy, robust fear of Him. And again, this is important because in our day, we fear a lot of things. We fear viruses. We fear governmental intrusion into our lives. We fear a multitude of things. But Jesus said, Fear not Him who can destroy the body, Matthew 10.28, but fear Him who can destroy both body and and soul in hell now again this is often we see these passages where God's dropping bodies and we think wow that sounds so harsh and and again part of it is because we don't see the dignity of God's holiness we think that's too severe a punishment that's because our view of God is way too low. Let me illustrate this for a minute. Imagine a brother and a sister, a brother and brother getting a squabble and the brother takes a swing at his sibling. There will probably be some consequences. Imagine that same child takes a swing at mom or dad. Now, there's more serious trouble. Imagine someone takes a swing at a police officer. There's far more serious consequences. Imagine someone taking a swing at the commander in chief, the president of the United States. You're going to find yourself on Guantanamo Bay. Nobody's going to hear about you for the rest of your life. There's a greater consequence. When it comes to the greater dignity and value and worth of the person sinned against. That's why when we come to the New Testament, we get shocked by these consequences here. But when we look at the consequences of sin by the time we come to the New Testament, it's actually even more clear than the Old Testament. Namely, eternal torment. That's the consequence of sin. Not merely temporal death, which sometimes God does, but it's eternal torment hell and friends we need to encounter this great holy God this God who requires bathings and anointings and sacrifice and all that just for the priest to even go even somewhat close into his very presence we need that because so much of our thoughts of God are too low and too light Too much evangelical light today. But not only because Leviticus is part of that profitable God-breathed Scripture, it's foundational to understanding the New Testament. It presents to us the Holy God, but it also presents to us, communicates to us the gracious God who can be approached through blood sacrifice and through priest. This is the amazing thing that this holy God is willing, in the midst of all of his transcendence and holiness and, and spotless character, he is willing to condescend and dwell in the camp of ancient Israel, to dwell amongst his people. And He graciously provides a means by which they could access Him and have fellowship and a relationship and dare I say this, even eat with Him. It happens through this sacrificial system. We're going to see five different sacrifices in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. And each of these sacrifices has a kind of nuance to them. Each of these sacrifices, not one of the sacrifices entirely communicates and foreshadows the glorious death and resurrection of Jesus. So there's five different ones that highlight different nuances we're going to see a priesthood in chapters 8-10. through 10, And all of its ritual and all their outfit, their uniform that had to be worn, and all the ceremonial procedure that was required as they would then stand as mediator between God, holy God, and sinful man. And sacrifices were going to be brought to the priest, and there was a whole procedure, and there was a bloodletting, and there was a butchering, and these sacrifices are offered, and it is by the means of these sacrifices and through the mediation of the priest that sinners can approach and have a relationship with a holy God. (laughs) And in this book of Leviticus Much like when you're teaching children, use object lessons, use pictures. In the Old Testament, we have object lessons and pictures that find their culmination in reality, ultimately in the New Testament, through Jesus the great High Priest. Through Jesus and His perfect butchering on the cross. And so, friends, as we encounter this study in Leviticus... I hope and I pray that you will grow deeper in your love for Jesus and appreciation of all these different sacrifices and the grace of God that lies behind these sacrifices and your love for Christ will grow. So, enough about why you should study Leviticus. Who wrote Leviticus? I'm glad you asked. This might seem like a minor point, but you need to understand that Leviticus was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. It was written by God Himself. And and, and that might seem like a given, but for many years, the book of Leviticus and the Torah, the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible in in particular, have been in the crosshairs of unbelief. You could probably trace virtually every Bible college and theological seminary, at least in the United States of America, and begin to trace where they drifted into theological liberalism and ultimately denying the gospel by looking at their Old Testament department and particularly what they believed about those first five books of the Bible and who wrote them. And what you'll find is often it begins a crack in the foundation begins with denying that these are inspired by God and denying that Moses wrote those first 5 books. This book came under attack especially in the 19th century in what's called higher critical theory. And denying that Moses wrote these first five books, they began to speculate that there was different sources for different sections of those first five books. It's called the J E P D theory. That a certain section that you know the author liked to use the word Yahweh. So that's for J, Jehovah, and then there's an Elohim section, there's a P, a priesthood section, it goes on. And and all this was to deny that Moses actually wrote. But the one interesting thing, when you look at the book of Leviticus for itself there is more direct quotations around Yahweh's speech than any other book in the entire Bible. In other words, uh, it you know, some of your New Testament copies of New Testament have red letter writing and I'm not a big fan of red letter Bibles where all the the everything Jesus says is in red. But if you had a red letter Old Testament and all the direct quotations from Yahweh God of Israel are in red. The Book of Leviticus would be almost all red. It's almost all direct communication from Yahweh God of Israel to Moses, and over and over, it's it's recorded. Yahweh speaks to Moses, tells him, "Tell the people this," and Moses records it. Not only that, we we have over 56 times, according to Walt Kaiser, is that direct direct statement, Yahweh said to Moses. But also throughout the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Bible assumes that Moses was the human instrument in writing these first five books. If you were to read first and second chronicles seven different times the chronicler refers to the pentateuch as the writings of moses if you were to look at the, read the uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, you would see five different times the author of Ezra and Nehemiah refers to Moses. The, those first five books as Moses' writings. If you look at the New Testament, you see in Peter's sermon, as Luke records it, he says in Acts 3.22, Moses said, and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, Romans chapter 10 verse 5, Paul cites from Leviticus chapter 18 when it says the man who does these things will live by them and Paul says it's written by Moses. And of course we have the testimony of Jesus himself. Jesus, the end of that sobering parable in Luke chapter 16, if they do not listen to those JEPD redactors and the prophets, they will not listen even if someone rises from the dead. No, that's not what he says. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. The testimony of Jesus in John chapter 5 and verse 46, if you believe JEPD, then you'll believe in Me. No, no! If you believe in Moses, you would believe in Me, for He wrote about Me. But since you do not believe what He wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Over and over, the testimony of Jesus is that those first five books are God's words and they are Moses' words. The human instrumentality is Moses himself. And again, this is important. Because if we're going to rightly understand Leviticus, we need to understand it's part of the Pentateuch as a whole. It's part of those first five books. And he's writing to that Hebrew audience. Because if you say that this was a later writing, then you're going to have, that. well, this is being written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah or some later date, and it's going to affect how you understand the whole book. And so we need to understand that this is part of the god breathed Scripture recorded by Moses himself. So, we sought to answer, why study Leviticus who wrote it? Now, third, what is the message of Leviticus? Well, let's turn to Leviticus one, chapter one, and verse one. The first words, in fact, if in our English Bible, the title of Leviticus is Leviticus. In the Hebrew scriptures, that the first, the title of every book of the Tanakh of those first 39 books we regard as the Old Testament is the first word of that book of the Bible. And so for instance the, the the book of Genesis would be called Barashith in the beginning because that's how Genesis starts. Well Leviticus is called Yekara which means then the Lord called. Now we see that the book of Leviticus begins then with the word then. Which assumes what? Something happened before. In other words, it's vitally important to understand the book of Leviticus. You need to understand it's part of a larger volume, namely the Torah or the Pentateuch or what we call the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's all one garment. It all goes together. Leviticus falls on the heels of Exodus. So in order to understand the message of Leviticus, we have to rewind the VHS. VCR, put in your VCR. We're going to rewind, hit the rewind button, and we're going to go back to the beginning. Okay? So Genesis starts out, Genesis chapter 1, with the creation of Adam and Eve. Genesis 1.27, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Then on day 7, God rested and He places Adam and Eve, the crown of His creation, in the Garden of Eden. And there God dwells with His people with a personal kind of relationship. And there was no sin that existed between Adam and Eve. And He gives Adam this charge to serve and to work the garden, to cultivate and to keep the garden, to serve and to keep the garden. And Adam, in a very real sense, functions as a kind of king-priest in the garden. He's a king in that He's given dominion over the creation. He's priest in that He has immediate access to Almighty God. But you remember what happens, right? Everything goes south in Genesis chapter 3. When you enter into the the story, the serpent, and the serpent who is more crafty than any other animal, he comes and tempts Adam and Eve and they rebel against their Creator. You remember the aftermath of that? All of a sudden Adam and Eve realize their nakedness and they are cursed and the the serpent is cursed and Adam is cursed and Eve is cursed and they're driven out of the Garden of Eden and God places them east of Eden and He puts cherubim there outside guarding the way back into Eden. And so man is now fallen. Man is now in a state of rebellion. And that rebellion escalates to the point where God is is ready to destroy all of humanity, save eight people. And He does so as He floods the world and He saves only Noah and his family. And then, You continue on and and you realize there's still corruption upon the earth. And we see the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. As man seeks to make a name for himself and make his way to heaven. All trying to go back into Eden and drive their way past the cherubim. But God's not having it. And so he confuses them. But, But... but He is a gracious God and so He begins to institute a plan, a kind of new creation, something He's going to do with Abram and Sarai. And, and He gives promises to them of a land and a people. And And you remember that promise is passed on to Isaac and then, then the promise goes on to Jacob and then on to Jacob's twelve sons and, and pretty soon God's blessing them and, and Jacob and his sons are... Amazingly fertile. And they find themselves in captivity in Egypt. In a very difficult situation, right? And then it's in the midst of that captivity that the Hebrews cry out to Yahweh who made these promises to Abraham so many years prior. And God remembers the promises He made with Abram And... and, and, and And he raises up a little baby, baby Moshe, baby Moses. He saves him through an ark, a little baby boat. And uh, he raises up Moses and when Moses is, is of age, he summons Moses to go and deliver his people out of Egypt and to bring them to that land that he promised them. And so this finds that now we're in the story in the book of Exodus. And and turn to Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22. And we're going to see this repeated theme over and over. Exodus 4.22 Then, this is Yahweh talking to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may worship me, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn son. So God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, let Israel go so that they can serve Yahweh, so that they can worship Yahweh. Exodus 5, 1-3. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to our God. So here we go. Worship, feast, Sacrifice. Let the people go so that they may worship Yahweh, so that they may sacrifice to Yahweh, that they may feast before Yahweh. Exodus chapter 7, verse 16. You shall say to him, again, instructions to Aaron and Moses, what they are to say to Pharaoh. This is what you say to Pharaoh in Exodus 7.16. Yahweh, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. Exodus 8.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may worship me. Exodus 8.20. The Lord says, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Exodus 8.27. Thus we must go on three days' journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to Yahweh as He commands us. Exodus 9.1 Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may worship me. One more, Exodus 9.13 Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may worship me. You get the point? What was the point of the Exodus? You should be able to say That Israel would meet with their God in worship through sacrifice and feast with Him. It's repeated over and over. Let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me. Same Hebrew word, eved, worship, serve. Let my people go. And then, after the Exodus, after God brings them out through these monstrous plagues that bring this mighty nation of Egypt to its knees. He delivers them out and He establishes a covenant which is a binding promise with the people of Israel. And then in chapters 25, almost clear to the end in Exodus chapter 40, is a long section on the tabernacle. Now, If Leviticus isn't the graveyard of Bible reading plans, maybe Exodus 25 through 40 is. Right? There's a lot of regulations on the tabernacle, right? A lot of repetition, a lot of meticulous... It's it's like reading uh, an instruction manual from Ikea after you buy something to put together, you know? It's not really invigorating reading. But let me point to you, you to some things that you may not have thought about. Exodus chapter 25, as instructions are given inside that tabernacle or that tent, which was going to be this place of worship. This, was, this is what everything is driving to, everything is leading to, for Israel to worship their God, to meet with Him through sacrifice. And at the centerpiece of this tabernacle was to be what's called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that Ark in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 18 says, You shall make two cherubim of gold and make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. So sitting on top of the Ark, which symbolized the very presence of God, were two cherubim. Well, the previous time Moses mentioned cherubim was where? You guessed it, the Garden of Eden. Not only that, if we were to look to see what was to be embroidered on the curtain, the veil, which was the entry point into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, you would see embroidered there was a cherubim. In other words, cherubim guarding the way back to God, the way back to Eden. Not only that, I mentioned one of the instructions that was given to Adam in the garden in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15 was that he was to serve and to keep the garden. Or the New American Standard translates it, then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to cultivate and to keep it. Those same two Hebrew words, to serve and to keep, are used over and over to describe the work of the priests. Numbers chapter 3 and verse 6 through 8. Bring the tribe of Levi and near near, and set them before Aaron the priest that they may serve him. There's the word translate cultivate in Genesis 2.15. They shall perform the duties for him and the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do service in the tabernacle. So, over and over the reputation of serving and keeping the language that was used for Adam in the garden is now used for the priesthood. Not only that, of course, the centerpiece of the garden was its fruitfulness, right? In Genesis Chapter 2 and verse 9, there was the tree of life and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and evidently there was more trees because God told Adam you can eat from any tree in the garden but you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So so there's the, the lush trees, the tree of life is there in the midst of the garden. Well, are there any trees in the tabernacle? I'm glad you asked. There was the menorah. The lampstand, which was crafted to be like a tree. Listen to Exodus chapter 25, verse 31. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and shaft, which could be translated trunk, are to be hammered work, its cups, its bulbs, its flowers of one piece six branches shall go out from its sides three branches of the lampstand from the one side three branches of the lampstand on the other side the three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms and the one branch a bulb and a flower and three cups like the shape of almond blossoms and the other branch a bulb and a flower so for six branches going out of the lampstand so there you have in the midst of the tabernacle is a tree there you have cherubim. There you have a priest. All of this imagery Moses wrote about earlier in the garden. But yet there's more. How about the precious stones? Remember in the garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 12 it says the gold of the land is good. And the bdellium and the onyx stones are there. Well, wouldn't you know, when you look at the priest, there's onyx stones upon his ephod in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 7, in Exodus 25 verse 11 and 12, I mean, in pretty much all throughout the tabernacle, the gold is good, right? Everything is overlaid with gold. You know, the ark was to be overlaid with gold. The different instruments overlaid with gold. Everything was overlaid with gold. Not only that, the directionality of the tabernacle. Remember when God drove Adam and Eve out of the tabernacle? He drove them east of Eden. The entry point was on the east side of the Garden of Eden and the entry point of the tabernacle was on the east When we get to that that great day of atonement, which is the centerpiece of the book of Leviticus, and really the centerpiece of the entire Torah, I would argue, what you'll see happening there is the priest, he's going to do a blood cleansing, and he's going to go from west to east, ultimately right outside of the tabernacle, and then he's going to lay his hands upon an animal, and he's going to move further east even into the wilderness so that the tabernacle served as a replica of Eden. In other words, this was God's way of saying, the way back to me... Is through the tabernacle. There I will dwell with my people just like I dwell with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so it's all set up. All the furniture is erased. All the renovations have been done. All the gold has been overlaid. All the curtains have been sewn. And now they're waiting. And finally, when we get to Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1, now you meet with me through blood sacrifice. You can come back to me, but now it comes through blood, sacrifice, Leviticus 1-7, through and through priest. And so Leviticus, in a very real sense, is the gospel. It's the way back to God. It's the way back to Eden. It's the way back to fellowship with God. And wouldn't you know, it's all about sacrifice and priesthood. Sound familiar? It sounds familiar because you've watched the second half of the movie. And you know that by the time we get to the New Testament, as Jesus is suspended between heaven and earth... And he's crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he himself becomes the sacrifice upon the cross. And Mark, it records that the temple veil was torn in two. And Jesus becomes the sacrifice and the priest who is the way back to God. And through his perfect saving work, why don't you know when we go to the end of the movie, In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 22, it says, Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life." "...bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will serve Him, and they will see His face. There He is with His people. And His name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of the light, of light or of a lamp." nor light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And so friends, what we have in the book of Leviticus and through the tabernacle is the way back to Eden, but it's in, it's in object lesson form. It's in picture format that finds its culmination in Christ. He... Himself, Jesus, is the way back to the future paradise. And so, friend, if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, this is all new to me, you need to understand God indeed is a holy God. He is not a God to be trifled with. He is serious about sin. He can kill you if He wants. And we deserve His judgment forever for all eternity. But in the wonder of His grace and kindness, just like He did in ancient Israel, He provided a way to paradise, a way back. Even though your relationship with Him has been disrupted by sin, there is a way back. It's through blood, sacrifice, and through priesthood. But now we've watched the end of the story. And it's all fulfilled in Jesus and His sacrifice upon the cross. And so, friend, if you've not yet joined yourself by faith to Jesus, trust in Him alone for your eternal salvation. He is the way back to Eden. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You. Thank You for the beauty of Your Word and all of its symmetry and storyline that goes from Genesis to Revelation. Lord, hopefully we see a little bit better how... In picture form, we have the Gospel in Leviticus. And so, Lord, teach us and instruct us. Help us to see the good news. In Jesus' name, Amen.